Turn with me, if you will, in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 9. Genesis chapter 9. This morning we'll look at verses 18 down to the end of the chapter, verse 29. Sometimes little things make a big difference. <clears throat> I was trying to think of examples of that that we might all know. I thought of the recent crash of Alaska Airlines Flight 261. That seems to have been caused by a worn jack screw in the tail of the airplane, which did not get replaced when it was recommended by the mechanic that it be replaced. It seems that someone remeasured and determined that the wear was actually one one-thousandth of an inch less than would require replacement. One one-thousandth of an inch is about a fourth as thick as this piece of paper. <clears throat> At any rate, the replacement was over, the replacement order was overturned, and 88 people died when it crashed. Sometimes little things make a big difference. Little acts of faithfulness save whole nations. Little moral failures bring down great leaders. Little problems, when neglected, result in costly accidents. Sometimes little things make a huge difference. I, I make a point of this because our text today seems to be such a little thing. But we have this seemingly little incident, so insignificant that when we read it, we have trouble understanding what's the big deal. And yet, as we will see, the consequences have been felt in the world ever since. As this little thing makes a big difference in the history of the world. Well, let me read it, beginning with verse 18 of Genesis chapter 9. The sons of Noah who came out of the ark were Shem, Ham and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These were the three sons of Noah, and from them came the people who were scattered over the earth. Noah, a man of the soil, proceeded to plant a vineyard. When he drank some of its wine, he became drunk and lay uncovered inside his tent. Ham, the father of Canaan, saw his father's nakedness and told his two brothers outside. But Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it across their shoulders. Then they walked in backward and covered their father's nakedness. Their faces were turned the other way so they would not see their father's nakedness. When Noah woke from his wine and found out what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, the lowest of slaves will he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. May Canaan be the slave of Shem. May God extend the territory of Japheth. May Japheth live in the tents of Shem. And may Canaan be his slave. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. Altogether, Noah lived 950 years, and then he died. This passage has uh, two truths to teach us, as I understand it. The first is this, that in the midst of blessing, don't underestimate sin. In the midst of blessing, don't underestimate sin. You know, if we were writing this account, we might well have airbrushed these events right out of the picture. 
for God has um, done this wonderful and, uh, and powerful thing. He's brought judgment to purge the world of its wickedness. And he's reserved a little remnant of people with which to, to build a new creation. And he's entered into covenant with them, promising to sustain the world and entrusting to them life. Oh, it just doesn't get any better than this. God's blessing is overwhelming. Everywhere they looked, here God has blessed them and cared for them. What could possibly mar such an idyllic picture? Oh, in the midst of blessing, don't underestimate sin. For consider first the sin of Noah. Oh, make no mistake, Noah was a man blessed by God. From the very first time we hear the name of Noah back in chapter 5, we've heard nothing but blessing about this man. When he was born, his father called him Noah, which means comfort. He said, he will comfort us in the labor and painful toil of our hands caused by the ground the Lord had cursed. His father said, this is a blessing, this man, this baby that's born, he is going to be our comforter. And Noah had nothing, known nothing but great blessing through his whole life. He had found grace in the eyes of the Lord in the midst of a wicked people. And as a result, Noah alone walked in righteousness. He walked with God in the midst of, a wicked, of the wickedness of the world. He walked with God and did everything that God commanded him. For 120 years in holy fear, all alone, he built an ark to save his family. And God was pleased. And when it began to rain, God closed the door himself and sealed Noah into the ark to protect him and when the storm raged and the ark was, uh, was on a high sea, God remembered Noah. And they brought this, the, the dry ground to appear and the ark to come to rest. And Noah came out filled with gratitude for the way that God had blessed him. He sacrificed with gratitude to God. And God uh, received the sacrifice and and uh, made a covenant with Noah and with those who came out of the ark and promised them his sustained blessing and gave them the rainbow as a sign of his promise. Life was blessed for Noah. Everything about Noah's life was blessing, 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 blessing. But look where we find him now. This great man of God, this giant of the faith, this paradigm of Lonely perseverance in the midst of wickedness. This recipient of all of God's blessing now lies drunk, uncovered, naked in his tent. What a pathetic picture of self-indulgence and excess and lack of control. Oh, in the midst of blessing, don't ever underestimate sin. Or consider Ham, Noah's son. He too was blessed of God. Are you proud of your father? One of the greatest blessings a person can have is to be born with a godly father. Well, think about it. Noah's sons were born with the only godly father on the face of the earth. And so when the flood came, Ham and his wife were saved along with Noah. Perhaps by that time they understood and believed God's promises like Noah did. Or perhaps they were just simply inheriting daddy's blessings. While their hearts were full of doubt, we don't know. Either way, God delivered them from perishing in the flood. 
And now Ham and his brothers have the world by the tail. Everything is starting over. It's a whole new creation. And they are in on the ground floor. They are to become, as we'll see in chapter 10, the father of, of all the nations. God has promised to preserve them by his gracious covenant, signaled by the rainbow. Oh, make most, no mistake, God has blessed the sons of Noah. But Ham seems to, have, seems to have forgotten all of that when he comes upon his father, Noah, in his drunken, naked state. There's been endless discussion about what Ham actually did. The language used here that he looked upon his father's nakedness is used elsewhere as a euphemism for immoral sexual acts. Something happened so that when Noah sobered up, he remembered what Ham had done to him, according to verse 24. But we don't really know any more than this, that when Ham saw his father, he did not quickly cover him up. He did not try to find a way to make sure that his father was not disgraced anymore. Instead, he went out and told his brothers about the disgrace. We can only imagine the conversation. Hey guys, you should see the old man now. <laughs> he thinks he's so righteous. What a hypocrite. He's totally wasted in there. Naked as a jaybird. Come and take a look. You won't believe it. Ham had no honor for his father, from whom he had received blessing after blessing after blessing from the Lord. What sinful disrespect. What total ingratitude. What a rush to dishonor a man who he knew to be the greatest man on earth. In the middle of blessing. Never underestimate sin. It was Ham's brothers, Shem and Japheth, who tried to preserve some dignity for their father by carefully placing a garment across their shoulders and backing into the tent to drape the garment over their naked father and try to preserve some honor for this great man. Folks, we too have been tremendously blessed by God, haven't we? We live in spiritual and material abundance. What could God do for us that he hasn't done? But the indecency of Noah is not unheard of, even among God's people, is it? And the dishonoring of parents that we see in Ham, is, well, that's just... Common stuff for young people in our day, even Christian young people. Indeed, the immoral acts which some think Ham may have committed are also found among God's people. Oh, we need to hear the exhortation of this text that in the midst of God's great blessing, sin hasn't disappeared. Never underestimate the power of sin. The Bible's full of examples of people who failed at this point. It was immediately after the great blessing of the Exodus when God brought his people out of slavery in Egypt with his mighty hand. And immediately thereafter, what did they do? They grumbled and complained and refused to believe and refused to disobey God until they died in the wilderness. In the face of blessing, they underestimated their own sin. Or it was at the time of the pinnacle of, it was at the pinnacle of David's kingdom when God had blessed him with power and wealth and peace. 
that David sinned in regard to Uriah and Bathsheba. And it was only minutes after the intimacy of the Last Supper in the upper room with Jesus, why Peter's feet were hardly dry from Jesus washing them when he stood in the courtyard and denied with an oath that he ever knew the Lord. No wonder the Apostle Paul writes, these things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the fulfillment of the ages have come. So if you think you are stand firm, be careful. Be careful that you don't fall. Even in the midst of the greatest blessing, don't ever underestimate sin. The 17th century hymn writer Johann Freistein said it so well in verse, Rise, my soul, to watch and pray. From thy sleep awaken, be not by the evil day unawares. For the foe, well we know, oft his harvest reaps while the Christian sleeps. Watch against thyself, my soul, lest with grace thou trifle. Let not self thy thought control, nor God's mercy stifle. Pride and sin lurk within. All thy hopes to scatter, heed not when they flatter. It's the blessing. Don't underestimate sin. Well, before we move on, we see the result of uh, Ham's sin here. For Noah pronounced a curse, not on Ham, but on Ham's son, Canaan. Look at verse 25. Noah said, Cursed be Canaan. The lowest of slaves will he be to his brothers. Now, first let me say what we do not have here in verse 26. Over the centuries, this passage has been used to justify injustice against black people. In the American South, and even before that, people argued that Ham, from whom the African races descended, was cursed and destined to be slaves, he and his descendants. And so they argued that it was okay to have black people as slaves because God had cursed them and heaped that uh, sentence on them. Unfortunately, that's not what the text, unfortunately, that's not what the text says. Somebody failed to read the text. For it pointedly says that only Canaan is cursed, not Ham, not the rest of Ham's descendants, only Canaan is cursed. The lands to the south, Egypt and Ethiopia and Cush, those were the descendants of Ham. But they were descendants of Ham's other sons, not Canaan. The descendants of Canaan were the Hittites and the Jebusites and the Amorites and the Gezites and the Hivites, the people living in Sodom and Gomorrah, the people living in the land called Canaan. Furthermore, though this curse was pronounced by Noah, there is no record that it had any effect on the prosperity of the descendants of, of Cain, of Canaan, for centuries. It was only when the Canaanites themselves began to practice every form of wickedness, only then did the Lord make good on this curse. You recall some of that wickedness? The wickedness of Sodom and Gomorrah, those were Canaanite cities. 
But that's only a beginning. In Leviticus 18, the Lord says to his people who are about to enter the promised land, you must not do as they do in the land of Canaan, where I am bringing you. Do not follow their practices. And then for a whole chapter, the Lord spells out every kind of deviant sexual behavior that is loathsome to him that was practiced by the Canaanites and was not to ever be named among his people. Indeed, Walter Kaiser, in his book, Hard Sayings of the Bible, Rights of the Canaanites, I quote here, it is a matter of historical record that the Canaanites were notoriously deviant in their sexual behavior. Almost everywhere the archaeologist Spade has dug in that part of the world, there have been fertility symbols accompanying texts explicit enough to make many modern pornographic dealers seem to be mere beginners in the trade of deviant sexuality. Even the Romans, so depraved in their own practices, were shocked by the behavior of the Phoenicians in the colony of Carthage, the last vestige of Canaanite, of the Canaanite race. And so when the Canaanites were actually filled with all forms of wickedness, God did what had been predicted by Noah. And he gave them into the hands of the Israelites, the sons of Shem, Ham's brother. It began in the conquest of Canaan, when under Joshua's leadership, the people of Israel went in to take the land of Canaan, and it continued all the way into the time of Solomon, King Solomon, where we read in 1 Kings 9.20, all the people left from the Amorites, the Hittites, the Parasites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, that is, their descendants remaining in the land whom the Israelites could not exterminate, these Solomon conscripted for his slave labor force, as it is to this day. Oh, in the midst of blessing, don't ever underestimate sin. For it eventually pays terrible dividends, both in the corruption it brings and the terrible sentence of judgment that the Canaanites eventually experienced. Oh, but that's not the end of this story. In fact, the best part's yet to come, which brings us to the second point. That in the midst of the curse, God extends grace. In the midst of the curse, God extends grace. Last week we heard that before God made his gracious covenant with Noah and gave them the rainbow as a sign of that covenant, he first recognized that the sin in man's heart that had caused the flood was still around, still there. His covenant was going to be all grace, pure grace. So we ought not be surprised now, as a curse is pronounced on Canaan because of Ham's sin, we ought not be surprised to find God's grace being extended right there in the middle of that mess. As the Apostle Paul was later to write in Romans 5, where sin increased, grace increased even more. That's what we find here. In the middle of the curse, God extends his grace. Consider the blessing on Shem. We find it in verse 26. 
And he said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. May Canaan be the slave of Shem. The wording of this little statement is very distinctive for several reasons. Uh, one reason is that God's personal covenant name, Yahweh, is used here. It's translated Lord with all capital letters in your Bible. It's a, it's a, it's a different word. It's the, 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 the special name for God, Yahweh. There's also a play on words here. For the blessing is actually pronounced on God's name, not on Shem. Shem's blessing is that he will bear God's name. As Franz Dilich explains, Yahweh makes himself a name in becoming the God of Shem, and thus entwines his name with that of Shem, which means the name. You see, here we have the beginning of God electing a people for himself, a people to bear his name. Here we have the promise of blessing which would be passed on eventually to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Jacob's 12 sons, which make the 12 tribes of Israel. Here's the beginning of the people of Israel, the covenant people of the Old Testament. And as Moses so many years later writes all this down, those Israelites who have inherited this blessing are about now to go in and take possession of the land of Canaan, uh, uh, subduing the Canaanites, just like Noah prophesied. What an encouragement to God's people for them to know as, they, as they're on the, 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 the brink of this great conquest, to know that God has called us, God has blessed us, God has put his name upon us, and God has given us victory over the wicked. That's what they would have understood, I think, as they read these promises and these curses uh, made by Noah so many, many years ago. Even in the midst of the curse, God is extending grace to his people, his chosen ones. But there's also a blessing not just on Shem, but there's a blessing on, ja on the other son, Japheth. We read about this in verse 27. May God extend the territory of Japheth. May Japheth live in the, land, in the tents of Shem, and may Canaan be his slave. Here the promise is one of indirect blessing that Japheth will not only prosper and expand his, uh, his uh, uh, territory, but that he will live in the tents of Shem. In other words, that Japheth will share in Shem's blessing. So what are we talking about? Well, we search the Old, script, the Old Testament Scripture in vain. can't find where any such thing really happened. Some people have tried to say, well, maybe it's referring to the Philistines. They kind of were right there by Israel and kind of sometimes shared in the benefits of Israel. The only problem is that chapter 10 is going to tell us that the Philistines were descendants of Ham, not Japheth. It is only when we see the unfolding work of Christ in the New Testament that we can see this prophecy finally fulfilled. For you see, we Westerners, we are descendants of Japheth. Yet, because of Christ's work. In Christ, we live in the tents of God's promised people. We have a share in the blessings of Israel, the sons of Shem. Or as Paul makes the analogy, we who are wild olive branches have now been grafted in through the work of Christ 
to God's own chosen olive tree. Ephesians 2 says that. Remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope, without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household. The sons of Japheth, sharing the blessing in the tents of Shem. Oh, you see, in the middle of this mess, in the middle of this time of sin and judgment, God is already preparing a way for people like us to have a share in his blessing. For in the middle of the curse, God always extends grace. Oh, but you haven't seen anything yet. There's one more truth to consider before we close. For even the Canaanites, the Canaanites, under the curse, even the Canaanites, eventually are included in God's blessing. Remember when Israel marched into the land of Canaan to destroy it and subdue it? Who was the first person they encountered? Before the army even arrived, when the spies went in to spy out the land, who was the first person they encountered? Rahab, the Canaanite harlot, the wicked Canaanite woman, Rahab. But Rahab heard of the great things that the God of Israel had done and repented and, and put her faith in the God of Israel and joined her cause with the people of God. And God delivered her and her family. And they became part of the people of God. In fact, according to the genealogy of Matthew chapter 1, Rahab eventually had the privilege of being in the direct line of descent of King David, which made her in the direct line of descent of King David's son, the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, it is accurate to say in a very real way that Jesus is of Canaanite descent as well as being a son of Shem. As Dr. Palmer Robertson explained so well, in no other way could the grace of God be demonstrated more dramatically than in this reaching out to the entirety of sinful humanity. In order to extend this universal blessing to all portions of the human family, the Savior became the cursed Canaanite. The servant of servants, according to verse 26, among men. Jesus became the cursed one. Oh, can you fathom the implications of this? This means that there is no wicked person under any curse, no matter how bad, who is beyond the reach of the Savior. For he became the cursed one. He became he inherited Canaan's curse. He inherited the curse of the law for they hung him on a tree. He inherited, most of all, the curse of our guilt for he took our sins upon himself. But as a faithful servant of servants, he obeyed the Father all the way to the cross 
and there he endured the wrath of God's judgment. Every curse came down upon him that we, like Rahab, might walk free. There on the cross, more than anywhere else, we see this truth in action. That in the midst of the curse, God extends grace. Grace to sinners who now trust the Savior. As we approach the Lord's table this morning, we need to hear the warnings and the exhortations of this text. In the midst of blessing, don't underestimate sin. We come here again and again and again, admitting that we have no other hope for our sin. Admitting that all of the blessings that we know are not enough to save us, for sin is always with us. We come here to renew our diligence in the pursuit of holiness, the pursuit of knowing God. Realizing that we're not our own, we've been bought with a price. We don't, we're not called to just sit back and soak up the blessings, for that becomes an, an occasion of complacency, and sin creeps in. Instead, we're called to give ourselves, to follow Christ. But as we come to the table, we also need to hear the reassurance of God's grace to sinners. That in the midst of the curse, God extends grace to us. We don't come here because we're worthy of God's favor. We come because we know we are unworthy of God's favor. But we believe what God said. We take Jesus at his word when he says to sinners like us, Come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. When he says, Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. You who have no money, come, buy, and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money, without cost. Why spend money on what's not bread and your labor on that which does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me and eat what is good and your soul will delight in the richest affair. Give ear and come to me, says the Lord. Hear me that your soul may live, and I will make an everlasting covenant with you. My faithful love promised to David. In fact, even the Canaanites, under the curse for their wickedness, are now invited to come. For Jesus says, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. In the midst of the curse, you see, God extends his favor. Amen. Oh, Lord, thank you for these great truths which we struggle to understand. These little events which, for whatever reason pleased you, have such great significance in the history of the world. Help us, Lord, as we meditate on these things, as the seed of your word grows in our hearts. Help it, Lord, to bear fruit, that we would see how that you, Lord Jesus, are the center and the goal, the, the, the fulfillment of all things written in the scripture. And Lord, may our hearts be turned to you with greater adoration and uh, greater commitment. And now as we come to the supper, I pray that you would feed our souls, not just uh, with physical food, but with the food of your spirit, with uh, 
your own self, Lord Jesus. Help us to understand and to appropriate the grace set before us as we receive it in faith. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God in his grace doesn't lower the standards as he calls us to himself. God still hates sin. God still knows we're sinners. There's this wonderful passage in 1 Corinthians 6 where he says, Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral or idolaters or adulterers or male prostitutes or homosexual offenders or thieves or the greedy or the drunkards or the slanders or swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Not even people like Noah, you see. And that's what some of you were. You were. But you are washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. We come to the table if we don't say that somehow... God has lowered the bar and now we're all right, even though we're sinful. Now we come saying that the bar is infinitely high, for God demands absolute holiness, and we're not holy, we're not righteous. And yet, Jesus has washed us and made us holy by his broken body and spilled out blood. And uh, we must return to that, for this is our only hope. This is where we stand. We turn away from everything else and rest here in what Christ has done. This is the gospel our children need to hear. God has given us this picture where it's portrayed in physical symbols. So we invite our children to participate. We encourage you parents to explain what what it is that we're doing, what it means in order that they might grow in their knowledge too. And if it doesn't mean anything to you, we invite you to just sit and not participate, rather than to trample over holy things that you don't understand. Will the elders come and let's eat the supper together? Shall we pray? Oh dear Father, I pray that you would take this common loaf of bread which we now would use for uncommon purposes. And use it, Lord, to represent to us, to all of our senses, the reality of the Lord Jesus Christ and and the way that you have uh, given yourself for us in a body, taking our punishment on the cross. Lord, uh, thank you for this symbol that helps us to understand how we can participate in that and that uh, as we simply take and eat, that so we come to you in simple faith and receive you and trust you and to know that uh, your broken body is enough for the payment for our sin. So use this bread to that end. Uh, may our eating of it be combined with faith so that it becomes true food for our souls. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.